If you haven't been here, let me catch you up a little bit. We're in the middle of a series uh, entitled Questions You Might Be Afraid to Ask. And the theme of this series and the idea in this series is we all kind of have this list of questions sometimes that we just ignore when it comes to spirituality or following Jesus or Christianity or things that we see in the world. And we just sort of put it off to the side because sometimes we're afraid if we got an answer, we wouldn't like the answer that we got. And that might sort of uh, destabilize our lives, our lives of faith, or that there might not be an answer. And we're a little worried that that might destabilize us as well. And so during this series, we've been deciding to pull those out of the closets. Let's look at these questions and let's see what we can do. So that turns out to be my job. So the last few weeks, uh, all the cool people who come on Sundays submitted questions. Uh, and then I have been choosing from those uh, questions to give my best take on. So you can imagine just a little bit of a daunting task. So this week, um, I've just gone these first two weeks with the questions that seem to me to be asked the most. So last week, I got the most about that one, and this was what came in second. Let me read you an example of some of the types of questions that I get to take a crack at today. Does that sound good? All right. Here's a question from a real person, (laughs) as opposed to the robots who attend. (laughs) I know who you are. (laughs) Anyway, here's the question. Um, Why would God choose to take the life of a pastor and husband and father after a battle with cancer, someone so genuine, compassionate, and 100% focused on kingdom building? not the same question, but sort of, I think, getting to the same themes in our lives sometimes. Is God punishing me? Um, Or why does God often feel so distant? Now, taken together and sort of based on conversations that I've just had with people over the years, I'm kind of summarizing the question that I'm taking a crack at today is this. Why do bad things happen to good people? Or as it's titled in your bulletin, if God is good, why is there so much suffering in the world? Now, this is not an easy one to tangle with. And the reason it's not so easy is that, and many of your friends probably could say the same thing, but particularly I think because of the role I have here in the church, I know so many of the stories that are in this room. I know some of the stories that are happening right now that good people in this room are in the middle of living through. I know the stories from the past that are a little farther back now for you, but you remember. And I'm telling you, there's not a week that goes by where I don't hear some story of disappointment, pain, suffering, abuse. This is a big question. It's a big question to say, I'm going to tell you the answer to. Because what I found is things aren't that simple. You know, no matter what you believe about what theologians often call the problem of pain, what you believe about the nature of the universe or the existence of God, 
The problem of pain is a hard one to understand. And for many of us, it provides philosophical dilemmas to be sorted through. But for most of us, this is much more than a philosophical question. It's an intensely personal issue. Many of us have suffered through pain. We've lost a loved one suddenly and without warning, a child, a sibling, a parent. We've survived an intense relational breakup, maybe even the end of your marriage or a parent's divorce. Maybe you or someone close to you is currently suffering through a debilitating illness and the pain is very real to you. Maybe you personally have suffered abuse or someone close to you. And in these times, when we're experiencing these things, a common question to ask is, where was God? And a question, maybe even the existence of an all-powerful and good being. And this is a tough question for people of faith to answer. There are no simple answers to this. There's no answer that I can give you today that will fit every single situation that you've experienced in your life or that you'll experience someday. But I think it's an important question because I think the perspectives that can come from asking this question can affect how we see God and how we find him in the dark times of our lives. And that's something we all need. So today we turn to a story that the longer I'm a pastor... And the more situations I find people facing seems to come up again and again. Sometimes it feels like it comes up once a week. So let me read the scripture to you. And also I want to give uh, props to a book called The Reason for God by Tim Keller I read a few years ago, which really helped me in my thinking on this. So it's a little bit of a longer passage. Um, So get comfortable, but don't doze off on me, okay? This is John chapter 11, uh, the first 44 verses. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord, by that they mean Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, look, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that, the, so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sisters and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back. Jesus answered, "Um, by the way, everyone in the story is Jewish. When they say Jews, it was more the people with the political power, not all Jewish people, because every character in this story is Jewish. Just know it's reading it. It sounded like not what it is meant to mean. Um, and so Jesus answered, uh, they said, but Rabbi, a short while ago, uh, they tried to stone you and you're going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Those who walk in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It's when people walk at night that they stumble, for they have no light. And after he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of his disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. 
Thomas was always an optimist. <laughs> On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. But when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, they replied. Jesus wept. Now the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he have opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. The Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man. By this time there's a bad odor, for he's been in there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always heard me, but I've said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen, a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. (laughs) Now, I think this passage has a few things to say to us about the problem of pain. And I want to start today by looking at what, you might, what I consider two more philosophical aspects before finishing with two more personal understandings. See, these first two things, I think, are, are helpful, particularly when the heat is not on. These are wide-angle view of philosophical ideas that I think can help us understand pain and suffering. But they're not so helpful when you're in the middle of pain and suffering. I just want to say that up front. But there is a philosophical edge to this question uh, that these aspects, I think, can help bring perspective to. So one of the things I think is so troubling about times of loss is when they can seem so random, when we can't make sense of them. We ask ourselves questions like, why would this happen to me or to my friend or to these innocent people? And some thinkers have said that this is an example of pointless evil. And some have gone so far as to say this proves that no good God exists. So J.L. Mackey wrote a book called The Miracle of Theism. And he states this argument uh, pretty succinctly when he says this. If a good and powerful God exists, 
He would not allow pointless evil. But because there is much unjustifiable, pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God could not exist. Some other God or no God may exist, but not the traditional God. But our scripture today suggests another perspective entirely, and that's this. That there is a bigger picture that's good. There's a bigger picture that is good. Now, it's clear from the action of the story that Jesus is aware that there's a bigger story, a bigger picture, a bigger scenario going on here that no one else in the story can see. So in verse 11, it says, After he'd said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. And Jesus had been speaking of his death. But, he, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And what Jesus sees and knows that no one else does is that Lazarus is actually going to be raised back to life. He makes that really clear, right? He says that's why we're going. He knows what's up. He knows what's going to happen. There's going to be what you might call a happy ending. And this is an indicator of a big theological idea that's stated well in Romans 8, 28 that says this, for we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And this idea, one that can be thrown around too casually, but that nonetheless is is an important perspective. It's that God doesn't cause evil or suffering, but rather that none of it is allowed to remain or exist randomly. That he works through it all to bring about good in the world. He redeems it all. And the difficult thing for the disciples and the loved ones of Lazarus is that they have no way of knowing that God is actually working through the entire painful situation that they're all in to work an amazing miracle. As Keller and many scholars have pointed out, the problem with Mackey's argument is that tucked away within the proposition that the world is full of pointless evil is this hidden idea or this hidden premise that if evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. But what if, like the people in this story, we can't see the whole thing, the whole picture? And if we use this approach to discredit faith in a good God, we run the risk of instead placing enormous faith in our own brains, in our own cognitive abilities. But beyond this, the action of the story suggests not only that God has a good plan, but that sometimes, and this is another big philosophical idea, it's not particularly helpful when you're in the middle of a situation that's painful, is this. God allows pain and struggle to bless us. Now, to understand this, I think it's helpful to understand the relationship that Jesus had with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. You'll notice in verse 5 it says that he loved them. And when the sisters send for Jesus to heal their brother, they don't even use their brother's name. They just say, the one that you love is sick. And verse 2 sort of points out the fact that Mary is the one who poured perfume on Jesus' feet and then wiped his feet with her hair. There's a certain level of intimacy. These guys are best friends. Jesus is connected to them. He loves them. They were his good, 
close, intimate friends that he loved. And then in verse 5 it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. He stayed where he was because he loved them for two more days? Why would Jesus let his good, intimate friends suffer with Lazarus's illness and death for two extra days? If he could have ended their pain sooner, why does God sometimes seem to delay when we're in pain? And I think this can get right to the heart of the question, so why does God often feel so distant? Or is God punishing me? And this is, believe me, this is an easy theology to preach but it's a hard theology to live out. And it seems to me that we can take from this scenario, one of the things that we can take from this scenario is that pain was somehow serving a purpose that would ultimately, in the big picture, enrich the lives of those who were suffering. And there's a little hint of this in verse 14 where it says, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. Now, the idea here is that there is some good that will come from every pain that we feel in our life, that there's some redemption that will happen eventually. There's something that will come of things that is good. You know, a few years ago, Beck and I took, had a chance to go out to San Francisco and go on a little bit of a vacation together and we visited wine country and we went up and down and visited all these nice wineries and I was very much a novice and still am. Um, but we started talking to people and you learn about, you do tours, you learn about how they grow vines and what it takes for a grape to be delicious and really make the best sort of wine. And one of the things we learned, I think is summarized by this uh, gentleman named Nick that I've read online, uh, who is a Bordeaux merchant so much cooler than me. And he wrote this. It's now common knowledge and common practice that vines pushed to the edge of their tolerance for many environmental factors generally tend to make better wine, more concentrated, more complex, more tasty. A drought or mineral-stressed vine can produce grapes with greater intensity of flavor, and sometimes stressed plants will put on a burst of growth, providing a higher yield. Becca's always helping me become a better person. A few years before this trip, I was at a conference that she helped organize, and there's this gentleman named Dixon Das Pommier, I'm so cool, who is from Columbia University, who is researching and working on vertical farms, at least he was at the time. And one of the things he said is there's a reason that hot house tomatoes generally don't taste as good as other tomatoes. It's because the conditions are too perfect. And there are these things I'm not making up known as flavonoids. That's a real thing. That are produced during stressful times as plants and fruits grow. That's where all the flavor comes from. And if you talk to people who've lived through a personal tragedy, with time and perspective, most will tell you that they've seen good results for at least some of the tragedy and pain that they've experienced. Keller, on a very philosophical tip, puts it this way. He says, if you have a great and transcendent, and you have a, if you have a God great and transcendent enough 
to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have at the same time a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. Indeed, you can't have it both ways. So philosophically, I think that's a very good argument to make. But personally, I'm not sure that it feels very good. Especially because in the entirety of Scripture, if you read it, we aren't promised the immediate resurrection that Lazarus and his family experienced. That doesn't happen every time. And the thing or the person that we lose, we may just lose. Where then is the resurrection in our lives? It's not always so obvious. You know, the bigger picture that we're supposed to trust is that good can seem and may often be a total mystery to us in the moment. There's a level of mystery in this. There's a story that Michael preached on a few months ago about a man waiting by a pool of water to be healed. It was a pool of water that tens, hundreds of people came to lay by, and when the water would stir, they'd try and jump in. And the thought was that they would be healed if they could get in first, and this guy had trouble getting in, he could never get in. And the story tells of Jesus healing that man, which is wonderful and amazing. It doesn't mention anything about the other 50, 100, who knows, people who were also around the pool, who at the end of the day had the same problems, that they started the day with. Now, maybe they saw something in that experience. Maybe they didn't. But not all of us get the immediate resurrection of our brother. So the philosophical ideas are helpful. And I think with time, they can help us understand a little bit of why suffering exists. And in time, they might even make sense to our own situations. But in the moment... Probably the worst thing that you could do or I could do as your friend is try and tell you exactly why you're experiencing what you're experiencing. Because the truth is, none of us knows. We just don't know. And when we try and put layers of meanings onto things, where we really don't know, we can end up doing more damage than good. If we decide what some painful thing means in our lives, and then we realize a year later, six months later, two years later, it wasn't that at all. All that does is like break us down all over again. And you'll notice that Jesus has a very specific interaction with particularly two of his best friends in the middle of this crisis, in the middle of the pain that they're feeling. And you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't say, look, there's a bigger picture going on here. You may not know it, but this story is going to end well. There's going to be some new things that are birthing you. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt. You're going to lose some things. But ultimately, I'm going to redeem the whole situation. Just wait. He doesn't say that, and he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead in like five or ten minutes. So they don't even have to sit with it very long. He didn't say, look, 
If you're going to suffer through this, you're going to come out a better person. It's okay. He does something else. This is our third point, that God is in it with us. The one thing that's important to notice is that God isn't just a disinterested observer in this story. He's actually a major player. So, even when Jesus has the opportunity to avoid the mess of all this suffering, he chooses to involve himself. There are other stories of Jesus healing people from a distance. A Roman official comes to him. His daughter's sick. He says she's healed. On the way home, the Roman official finds out his daughter was healed. Jesus could have done that. But he chooses to lean into the pain and suffering of others. Also, he's not ambivalent to the existence of suffering and evil in the world. He doesn't just shrug his shoulders, oh well. But you'll notice in verse 33 it says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Deeply moved. Verse 38 says, Jesus once more deeply moved came to the tomb. Now deeply moved... In the ancient Greek that this text was written in, literally means to snort like a horse. It implies anger and indignation. So Jesus here is angry at death. He's angry at the existence of suffering, angry that things like this happen. And I think what this indicates is that while God may allow or use evil and suffering and injustice, he doesn't like them one bit. Also, he relates to our suffering firsthand. Maybe some of you noticed and were struck by the words, the two words of verse 35, which are Jesus wept. So here's Jesus with full knowledge that Lazarus will be alive again in five minutes, joining in with the sorrow of the people around him. He weeps. He's present. He doesn't give answers. He doesn't make it simple. He's there. And he weeps not because Lazarus is dead, because he won't be for very long, and he knows that, but he weeps because of the pain and the sorrow and the suffering that death has caused his friends. And notice he doesn't offer any philosophical perspectives to Mary or Martha. Even when they say, if you were here, why weren't you here? Where were you? Doesn't say he gives any answer to that question. And this, I think, is the God of the Bible. Not neat, not simple, not trite. Not a puppet master God who stays on the sidelines. This is a God who saw the suffering in this world and took action to put things right. It's a God who does not avoid our suffering, not apathetic about the existence of evil, and who weeps with us as we suffer. This is a God who suffers himself. the most enduring image we have of him is of suffering on the cross. A God who to end injustice, to end suffering, to end evil, 
to begin the process of the renewal of the world, experienced them all firsthand, took them on his own back. So that those who follow could be a part of renewing all things. A God who allowed himself to experience death so that he could make a way for us to experience new life. And this is what we see in his interaction with Mary and Martha. I don't know if you noticed this, but right in the middle of her suffering, Jesus does do one thing with Martha, and that he does point her to himself as a source of her own renewal. So Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who's come into the world. Now, this might seem like an odd time for Jesus to make such a bold claim. But times of suffering are also times when we're in touch most with our need. And there are times when we examine the things in our life that we turn to, to sustain us, to encourage us, to empower us. And times of suffering, times of doubt, can actually be times when faith is born or strengthened and where we experience God in a more real way. Hard times are often times to find God. The problem of pain, it's, it's a hard issue to tackle for people of faith. But it's at least as hard or perhaps even harder question for a person who might consider himself or herself not a person of faith. You know, If things are just the way they are, this is just the way it is, for example, there's no higher order or, higher order or way things should be, the way things ought to be, then why are we even bothered by suffering? You know, so much in the natural world, it just depends on death, destruction, violence, violence of the strong against the weak. On what basis do we judge the natural world to be wrong or unfair or unjust? If things just are the way they are, why are we bothered? Keller puts it this way, says, in short, the problem of tragedy, suffering, and injustice is a problem for everyone. It's therefore a mistake, though an understandable one, to think that if you abandon belief in God, it somehow makes the problem of evil easier to handle. I think the opposite's actually true. It seems to me that times of suffering point us to a greater understanding of the way things should be, of the need for renewal, of the need for justice and the power of God to break into our world. We don't always experience it, but we hunger for it. And this is what Jesus offers Martha when he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. You know, we've talked so many times about life in the kingdom being this mix of already, where we experience this renewal, where we see miracles, where we see lives turned around and changed and not yet where we experience the brokenness of this world and we're waiting to see renewal, we're waiting to see redemption. But both are true. Times of struggle and doubt and trial. In this tension between already and not yet become times to find God. A God who lived through that tension an act of God who's neither disinterested or disengaged, but instead engaged, sustaining, and good. 
So why do bad things happen? You know, we can have broad answers to the big questions that from a wide-angle view are helpful. And I've given you some of those today. But when it gets specific, often we just don't know. Why did this happen to my friend, to me? And when you focus on a specific situation, more harm than good can come from forcing meaning onto it. It just hurts. And what this story offers us is that God knows that it hurts. He's not okay with it either. And he offers us his presence to be with us, to walk with us, to weep with us, to sustain us. So the answer to pain isn't an idea or an argument. It's a journey in which you're not alone. So, few quick things that might help you. There's a longer sermon than normal, and I appreciate you bearing with me. I think each one of these points deserves its own sermon. But let me just give you a few things to take with you if you are in the middle of some time. And these won't fix everything, but they can be helpful. Here's four quick things. One, I would encourage you to lean into Jesus. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. Verse 28 says, after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Lean in. However you can do that. Whatever that looks like for you, lean in. And if we're angry and confused, it can seem easier to push God away. But the encouragement is this, in this story is to engage with him. So lean in, and then my second encouragement for you is to be honest. Both Mary and Martha say similar things to Jesus. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Where were you? Where were you? Be honest. Don't get religious. Don't pray what you think you ought to pray. Don't try and feel what you think you need to feel. Mary and Martha don't do that. You don't have to do that. Just be who you are, whatever state you're in, feeling whatever you feel, angry about whatever you're angry about, broken about whatever you're broken about, and be honest. Lean in, be honest. There's no need to put a happy face on or pretend. Next, receive comfort. When Mary questions Jesus, he doesn't say anything of note. Jesus has nothing profound to say. Whatever he said was so, like, not profound that when John writes his story, he doesn't include it, at least. He's just there. Find a way to just receive comfort. If that means getting away for 10 minutes, yelling at God, and then just sitting quiet for a minute. See what happens. And then the next thing is for all of us. And that is that we can be for each other the body of Christ. That's a big theme in the New Testament scriptures, the, the Christian scriptures about what this community is, 
they're supposed to be is like the hands and feet, the heart, the mind, the eyes of Jesus for each other. It's great to have access to God through the Spirit, but we also need to relate to God through each other. We need to be Jesus to the people around us who are suffering. That's not easy, it's uncomfortable, and we won't have the answers. But we can do a few simple things. We can lean into our friends' lives. We do that just by asking questions, not giving answers. Jesus doesn't give any answers, just asking questions. And then listening. Let people express their pain and disappointment without judging, without giving a solution, just being there, weeping with them. Just be there. And let your presence be a comfort. It can be awkward. I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be good at this. I don't know if I am. It's awkward sometimes. You can feel in way over your head. It may feel like we'll do more harm than good. But if you're just there and present, like Jesus was for Mary and Martha, it gives the Spirit an opportunity. It shows people that God is with them through this journey. Let's do something for a moment here while I close up. Let's pray. And here's a, I want to pray a little different day. I just want you just to relax for a minute. Because I know the stories, I know a lot of you are going through things that are not simple or easy or light. I just want to do a quick prayer exercise that maybe this morning and this moment will be powerful for you, but also might give you a way to pray later in the week when you have some more time. So let's just, uh, let's be quiet for a moment. I want you to actually close your eyes. And what I'm going to ask you to do is use your imagination. One of the reasons we have our imagination is to help us pray. And I want you just to take three deep breaths. One more breath. And now what I want you to do, I want you to imagine that the story we just read, that you're in that story. Who do you relate the most to? Depending on where you are, it could be Mary, it could be Martha, it could be their friends who are gathered. But I want you to imagine that you're in the story. You're one of the characters. Except the morning isn't over Lazarus. The morning is over your loss, whatever it is that's causing you pain, or whatever it is you see in the lives of your friends. Just sit with that for a second.
What do you see around you? Who do you see around you? How are they behaving, responding? What are they doing? And whatever is going on, you remember that you are also waiting for Jesus. Now I just want you to imagine that you see Jesus approaching. Or you hear that he's there. Someone tells you that he's come, depending on what character you are. And as you do, you just make a decision just now, for the moment even, to lean in. To open it just a little bit of your heart to Jesus. Just enough to go and be in his presence. Even if it means you're going to tell him off. But you're not going to hide from him. You're going to lean in. And when you seek him, and when you come near to him, you let it all out. Everything you're thinking, everything you're feeling, where you're hurting, where you're angry, where you feel abandoned, where you're disappointed. And when you get it all out, you pause. And you start looking at the ground, but you lift your head up to see Jesus. What's he doing? What's he doing? And what I found is that what you see in that moment often can be the thing that can help you carry on and let you know that you're not alone. And also, if you're in the crowd, it's your friend that's hurting, what you see Jesus doing can be a really good indicator of what you should do next. Now, we don't have time to really spend time in that, but you can look up now. If that was helpful for you at all, I'd encourage you to come back to that way of praying. Maybe read the story and then take more time with it. Whatever you can do to see how Jesus might actually be close to you during this time. Put yourself in Mary's shoes and Martha's shoes in the crowds. Let me say a prayer to close this time. Father, problem of pain is bigger than any sermon can touch on. It's bigger than we can explain. Uh, it really is a journey that we're on, that we're living through. And I pray that we would find you now on that journey. And that if, our, if we're not in that place, that when we need to, we will remember 
that we can lean into you. Father, even as we may see in our lives this bigger picture actually come about and we can praise you for those things, let us not feel the pressure to understand that or make that make sense in our lives. But free us just to be with you. Amen. Um, If you're on the worship team, if you could make your way up right now. Uh, This is the last Sunday of the month. And when it's the last Sunday of the month, we take time to celebrate communion together. And so what I want to do is uh, read a short scripture, um, and then we'll take communion together. This is from John chapter 12. It's two verses, 23 and 24. And it says this, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And as Jesus was telling the story, he was referring to the death that he would suffer to release all kinds of new life into the world, into the cosmos, into everything. Um, And so as we take communion today, this is what we remember. That Jesus' suffering also produced new life. Um, So let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for Jesus. And Jesus, we remember the sacrifice that you made. Remember that it brought new life to us and new life to the world around us, that it was the prelude to resurrection. And so today, as we take the bread, it symbolizes your body broken on the cross. Would you bless it? As we take the juice, which symbolizes your, ju- your blood poured out for us, would you bless that? So that as we take communion, we would connect to that new life. We would remember your sacrifice and that it would bring us into your presence in a way that changes everything. Amen. So the band's going to begin to play in just a moment. And what I want you to do is I want to invite you to come and take communion. Well, actually, let me start that over.